Trinity Baptist Church. Hear these words of Paul as written in the book of Romans. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And these members of one body belong to each of us. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Love is not proud. The word of the Lord. Spring, you can read scripture. You know, I I would like to hire you to read the entire Bible and record it. And then in the morning, I'll just listen to that. (laughs) And the choir, the choir is awesome. Choir, it's so good to have the choir here. Last night, we had our uh, movie night here at Trinity. We we watched Back to the Future. And, uh, you know, we had some delicious chili and hot dogs. And uh, we had a lot of candy. There was a lot of candy. And... I thought I was doing the right thing by telling the kids, listen, you know, you can't have any candy until you had your chili and your hot dogs. I thought I was like really modeling good parenting. But then after I said that, I I said to the kids, uh, when you finish your chili and your hot dog, you can have as much candy as you can possibly eat. And as soon as I said that, I heard Alice Tien yell out, no! So I'm a new parent and I'm learning. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure a few years from now I'm going to appreciate uh, what you mean, Alice. <laughs> but um, yeah, baby steps. So I'm so glad that you're here today. Um, if you've been here for the last month or so, you know we've been doing this series called True Love. And we've been looking at the, the various facets 
of love taken from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. And if you were here the last few weeks, you know now that love is patient, that love is kind, that it doesn't envy. And, and today, uh, we're going to be looking at the fact that love doesn't boast, that it, that it isn't proud, okay? So... Uh, could be a little bit of a tough sermon for some of you. I know it was for me when I was putting it together, but we're going to get through this together. All right. Uh, so what does Paul mean when he says love isn't proud? What does he mean by that? Well, the kind of love or the kind of pride, excuse me, the kind of pride that Paul is referring to is, is taken from a Greek word, kinodoxos. Kinodoxos, and what it means is it's a state of pride without justification. It's empty pride, cheap pride, vain pride. And unfortunately, all of us struggle with this. All of us. And if you're thinking right now, well, I don't struggle with that. Well, the very fact that you're thinking that suggests that you probably do. Okay? We all struggle with pride. But where does pride come from? Where does it come from? The, the Bible says that we were originally made to live forever. We were made to live forever without any kind of sin, without any kind of brokenness. We were made complete, uncompromised, glorious. But we lost that in the fall. We lost that in the fall, and ever since then, we've been desperately trying to get back to where we once were. Now, how do we do that? Well, we have this God-shaped void, all of us. We have this God-shaped void, and we're looking to fill it with anyone or anything that will tell us that we matter, that we're significant, that we're good, that we're whole right? We, we're desperate for that. And so whenever we meet a person, whoever it is, the first thing we do unconsciously is we assess as to how or whether or not that person can meet our need. How can they fill us? How can they address this need that I have? Pride is a sickness that feeds on our insatiable hunger for glory respect and significance. But in our culture today, it doesn't take much. If you look around, you will see that pride is kind of celebrated as a virtue. It's the power that keeps our head up and our tears down, right? It's celebrated as a virtue. We feel as though we need to have a certain amount of pride to survive in this world. We liken it to self-confidence, to strength, right? And we need those things to survive, so we hang on to pride. But if pride puffs us up and it makes us appear to be more than we are, isn't that disingenuous? Isn't that inauthentic? Now, I know that there are some people here today that feel as though their whole life is falling apart. There are people here that are questioning their faith. 
There are people here that are in strained relationships. Maybe they're struggling to get up in the morning because of depression. Or maybe they're struggling with an addiction. Or maybe they go to work every day wondering if this is the day that they're going to get fired. Okay? And that's their existence. There are people in this room like that. And who knows about those things in your life? Hopefully no one, right? Hopefully no one. Because there's this assumption that if people know what we're really like, we're not going to be accepted. That we'll be ostracized. That we'll be pushed out. That we'll be looked down upon. And sometimes it's even worse at church. It's even worse at church because there's, this also, there's also this assumption that everybody at church has it together. Right? You look around and you think, everybody here has it together. And so when someone comes up to you and says, hey, how are you doing? We smile and we say, oh, fine, fine, everything's great. But we know that it's not, right? Why do we do that? Pride. We do that because of pride. Now, how does pride impact our ability to give and receive love? C.S. Lewis says that pride is the utmost evil. That it's been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. It's the root of every disagreement, every fight, every act of violence and hate. And it's become the devil's most effective and destructive tool. Did you, did you get that? Without pride, no other sin could flourish. It locks us into our mistakes. It closes our exits and it hardens our hearts. Worse yet, it enables us to feel justified about all the bad things that we've done. So what's the cure? What can we do about that? Well, it's all summed up in another Greek word. The Greek word is tapinoo. Tapinoo which means humility. Humility. It's being fully dependent on the Lord and dismissing reliance upon self and emptying carnal ego. You see, pride exalts itself where humility exalts the Lord. Pride exalts self Humility exalts the Lord. When we humble ourselves and acknowledge that God is God, he enables us to put aside those things that are indifferent to him. Instead of being fixated on ourselves, we find fullness in him. So what does humility look like? What does it look like? Sometimes people equate humility with low self-esteem. But is that true? Do you know that it's actually impossible 
to be humble unless you have a high self-esteem. So it can't be equated with low self-esteem. When Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourself, he's not suggesting that we consider other people to be better than we are. That's not what he's suggesting. He's calling us to consider other people's concerns, their needs, their ideas above our own. Those are two different things. And we can't do that unless we're pretty competent in ourselves. We have to be self-competent in order to do that. So what does pride look like? What does it look like? When we think of a proud person, the first thing that comes to mind is an arrogant person, right? Somebody who's haughty, starting their stuff. But did you know that pride can be manifested in a, a sense of superiority, but also in a sense of inferiority? See, there's two sides to pride. So what Paul is really calling us to is to have an accurate view of ourselves. Not too high, not too low, but an accurate view of ourselves. If your pride is manifested in an attitude of inferiority, for instance, you might be a people pleaser. You might work excessively because you want people around you to think that you know, you're important to the organization. You might be overly concerned about what people think of you. And I know that I struggle with this. I've struggled with this for a long time. And uh, several years ago, I was working for a, a very successful church. And I had a job there that I really loved. And I felt like I was making some really significant contributions to that organization. My entire community was in that place. Uh, and I loved what I was doing. And, and I got fired without notice. There were some things that were happening in the economy and they had this round of layoffs and all of a sudden I was gone. And during that season, uh, I realized that my identity had been wrapped up in my position there. And I really didn't know who I was for a while. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't even know where to, where to go when I left my apartment. And uh, through that season, what God was showing me is that my identity could not be rooted in anything other than him. Because nothing else is stable. Nothing else is stable. And so soon after, I got a new job here at Trinity. And God was working on this stuff in my heart. And I was learning some things from it. Uh, but there was a new chapter of my life that had emerged. I had just gotten married. And I really wanted to be a good provider for my wife. And when I had started this new job, I really wanted to prove myself in this place. And so immediately I started working long hours and, and trying to do whatever I could to make a difference in this place. And that's a good thing, right? Right? 
if my motives are right. Okay? Um, I'd like to say that I was doing all those things because I had this burning passion for Jesus and for advancing his kingdom. And part of that was true. But there was also a part of me that was fearful that I might end up in the same position that I did in the previous job, that I would be terminated or that I would be shown to maybe not have what it takes. And so I was taking things upon myself to make sure that that wouldn't happen. Now, I I thought I had a handle on that. I thought, you know, over the last several years, I feel like I've I've become more at peace and, and that I could trust God. But last week, I had a wake-up call. And it's a really insignificant thing, but I want to share it with you. You know, I, on Sunday mornings, I, I, I do all sorts of things around here. You know, I help with the coffee cart. I do the announcements. I do sign-ups after the services. I help small groups. I, all kinds of stuff. I'm doing all sorts of things behind the scenes on Sunday morning. Last Sunday, I was doing all those things, and there were some gaps. There were a few volunteers that didn't show up, so I was looking for people to do communion, and I was doing this and that, and I was also scheduled to serve in the nursery during the second service, on top of all those other things. So I did the announcements in the first service, and everything got done during the the first service, and during the second service, I forgot to come up here and do the announcements. So the second service starts, and Beth is stuck up here wondering what the announcements are, okay? And Roy's got the slides up there, and the service has got to start. The countdown's already gone down. James is nowhere to be found. So Beth has to muddle through it, and about 10 minutes later, I'm down in the nursery, and it occurs to me, I didn't do the announcements. So I came running upstairs to see if I was too late, and I was. And, you know, I was really distraught about it. I mean, I went back down to the nursery, and I sat down, and and I was just like in a different world. I mean, I was stressed. My anxiety was really, really high. And, you know, and a couple people said, you know, James, it's not that big of a deal. You know, Beth Beth handled it. You're, You're fine. I know, I know, I know. And, you know... It was one of those moments where I felt like the Holy Spirit really spoke to me. He said, James, how come you're feeling so much distress over this? And I said, well, you know, I didn't want to leave Beth in a lurch like that, you know. And Oh, is that it? And I realized that I had just told God a half-truth. The rest of the answer was, I don't want to appear incompetent in any way. I want people to think that, that I'm a real asset to this organization and that they couldn't make it without me. What is that? Pride. I think God knew I was going to be preaching on pride this week. <laughs> so, so he was kind of like, let's do a little look in the mirror here. And I had to really confess, you know, that's why I'm feeling so much anxiety about this. You know, this is a lifelong thing for me. I've got to continue to work on this. Now, how do we know if we're healthy or not when it comes to pride? How do we know if we're healthy? We're healthy 
when we're not all that concerned about what other people think of us. You know, we may consider what people think of us, and we should. But it shouldn't have a handle on us like it does for me. Okay? It shouldn't be your, your driving force. When we're unhealthy, we're always thinking about ourselves. We often feel snubbed. Somebody does something to us or disrespected or defensive if someone challenges something that we're doing or something that we think. And we really easily get our feelings hurt. All that stuff is manifestations of pride. True humility enables us to embrace our identity and respond appropriately. So what is our true identity? Who does God say we are? Well, if you ask a typical person on the street, you know, what are you like? Who are you? They'll probably tell you something along the lines of, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good person, but I, I make some mistakes now and then, right? And that's true, but is that our true identity? Is that what the Bible says our identity is? You might recall the old hymn, Amazing Grace. You remember it? Do you remember the lyrics? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What's a wretch? A wretch is a despicable, contemptible person. Despicable and contemptible. Now, we don't use that word much in our, in our vocabulary anymore. But if we did, I would bet that very few of us would describe ourselves as a wretch. But the Bible says that we are all sinners saved by grace. We are deprived. And in Romans 7, 14 through 18, Paul starts talking about himself. And he says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't do it. Can you identify with Paul? I know I can. Again, a daily struggle. You have this vision for who you'd like to be, and then you have the reality of who you really are. We have this inner battle that's raging inside of us all the time. And when we come to terms with our brokenness, our initial response, our gut response, our human response is to compensate for our shortcomings, right? We want to draw attention to the areas of our lives that are going well. We want to tout our accomplishments. But that's only adding to the problem. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, 
We can't take credit for most of our accomplishments anyway. How many of you have ever read uh, any of Malcolm Gladwell's books? Remember The Tipping Point? And then he wrote another book called Outliers. Did any of you read that? Great book. In this book, uh, Gladwell makes the point that our successes have more to do with our opportunities than they do with our skills and abilities. Okay? And he, he, he takes Bill Gates, for example. Okay? Now, when we think about Bill Gates, most of us would consider Bill to be a genius. Right? And he probably is. He probably is. But he also had access to a powerful mainframe computer in 1968 when very few people had access to that. And what this did is it enabled him to log thousands of hours practicing his programming skills before the personal computer became available to practically anyone else. So Gates just isn't a genius or a great businessman. He's also lucky, okay? He took advantage of unusually available resources, and then he worked like mad. If Bill Gates had been born in Rwanda, he probably wouldn't have had that opportunity, right? And none of us would have any concept of that operating system that now consumes about a third of our lives, right? Somebody else would have, somebody else would have designed it, maybe. Now, another example that Gladwell gives is uh, he, he talks about can, the Canadian Hockey League, okay? And uh, this is an interesting one, too. He says that uh, Canadian hockey players that are born in the first few months of the year enjoy advantages over those that are born later in the year. And, and what he says is, in Canada, the eligibility cutoff age for hockey programs is January 1st. Okay? And in Canada, they take hockey really seriously. Okay? And so coaches start streaming kids into teams at around 7 or 8 years old. And so, by the time a kid is seven or eight years old, they're, they're on teams and they're being worked with by coaches. They're getting practice time and they're getting playing time. Now, who tends to be the best player at age seven or seven? Well, the kid that was born earlier in the year, right? Because 10 or 11 months of developmental time makes a big difference when you're seven years old, okay? So for the next several years, the kids born in January and February get more playing time, they get more coaching, and they get more opportunity. And now, there are far more hockey players in the National Hockey League that are born in January than any any other month. Isn't that interesting? Now, I ran into this exact same thing. Uh, in the United States, we use the same system for basketball and baseball. And when I was a kid, I played AAU basketball. And if I had aspirations of making it into the NBA, I was born on the worst possible day. My birthday is December 31st. 
And so for several years, for several years, my mom would drive me to these AAU games and she would watch me sit on the bench until the last 30 seconds of every game. And then the coaches, out of pity, will take the scrubs and put them in for 30 seconds, let them run around for a second so they can say that everybody got to play. Okay? And I remember on the way home from those games, my mom would say, if I only would have known, I would have waited one more day to have you. <laughs> now, in my case, I don't know if it would have made any difference, but, but thank you, Mom. <laughs> and I don't blame the system. It's probably the most equitable way of arranging things. But do you see how opportunity makes a difference? Hmm. All this to say that it's only by God's grace that we have anything to tout. Everything that we've been given, every opportunity, every accomplishment can be traced back to opportunities that were given to us that were completely out of our control for the most part. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast of those things that show my weakness, my weaknesses. Now, why would anybody want to boast about their weaknesses? It seems counterintuitive, right? Well, boasting about our weaknesses takes the focus off of us, and it puts it on God. It puts it on God. And, and when we tell people how God saved us or elevated us from a place of weakness or brokenness, we're giving God the glory. We're giving God the glory. We're taking the glory off of ourselves, and we're giving it to God. And have you ever noticed this? Let me ask you this. Have you ever noticed that when people are willing to talk about their weaknesses, it draws us to them? We like people that are able to talk about their weaknesses. We trust people that can talk about their weaknesses. That's why programs like AA and Celebrate Recovery are so successful. Because they create environments where people are free to be honest and open about their brokenness, about their weaknesses. Now, how does humility impact our relationships? How does it impact our relationships? We want people in our lives that are humble enough to say, I'm sorry, right? I messed up. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that, and I apologize. I know that affected you in a way that was hurtful. And you need, to, you need to know that I recognize that, and I'm sorry. Humility enables us to put aside our self-seeking agendas and our need to be right, and it enables us to give love and receive it. And apart from humility, we cannot give love and we can't receive it. As Christians, we need to make this a top priority. We need to model this. And, and parents, if you're a parent here, I, I want to get into your business for a minute. And I think this is something that I can speak to. When you lose your temper 
and you say unkind things to your children, you need to model an appropriate response by humbling yourself and apologizing to your kids. And you need to ask them for forgiveness. You need to do that, parents. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Why would I do that? I'm the parent. I I make the rules. If you don't do this, your children will never learn how to deal with their own pride. At least not from you. And secondly, you will drive them away from you. As soon as they are old enough, they will move away from your house and you will not see them again. This is critical. But we need to be humble to do that. It takes humility to do that. And how do we get it? How do we become a humble person? We can't work on it directly. Humility is a weird thing. You can't decide one day that you're going to be humble. And you can't focus on it. Because if you focus on it and you try to become humble and you start thinking about, oh, I'm really starting to get humble, then you become pride. (laughs) See, humility is a byproduct of wanting something more than humility. See, we can't find healing by looking inward. We need to look to someone. We need to look to something else. We must look to Jesus and meditate on who he is and what he's done for us. When we do that, it starts to create humility in our mind and in our hearts. In Philippians 2.7, it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born into the likeness of men. What did Jesus empty himself of? Did you ever think about that? Was it his divinity? It wasn't his divinity. He never gave up his divinity. He gave up his he gave up his glory. He gave up his glory. And he humbled himself and became a servant. What was Jesus showing us in doing that? He was showing us that the way up is down. The way up is down. If we want to be rich, we need to give more. Sounds counterintuitive, but that's the way it works. If we want to rule, we need to serve. If we want to be happy, we can't focus on our own happiness. We need to invest in the happiness of others. And the greatest form of glory is to give up our glory for the sake of somebody else. All these years, I've been trying to fill myself up, compensate for deficiencies, but I can't do it. I can't do it. And meanwhile, Jesus is showing us that he emptied himself so that we could be filled, so that we could be lifted up. That's the cure. That's the cure right there. 
Jesus is, is looking at you. And he's saying, listen, you are more precious to me than all of the glory that I had in heaven. You are more precious to me that I willingly gave my life for you. I gave up everything for you. And I did it so that you could be lifted up, so that you could be taken from your broken state and made whole once again. You were a wretch in your fallen condition, but I have made a way for you to become whole. Do you know that the degree that we believe this, that we enter into this, is the degree that we will be healthy? That we will move from pride to humility, from death to life, from sickness to health. And when we get this, or when we start getting this, as I said, it's a lifelong thing. When we start getting this, we'll notice that we don't think about ourselves quite as much. Because we'll realize that our sense of security, our true sense of security is in him. Our sense of well-being is in him. Our circumstances are in his hands. And our identity is not rooted in what other people think of us. It's rooted in him. Only then will we be able to give and receive love as God intended. You know why? Because love is not proud. Love is not proud. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of humility, which is not something that we can get if we look for it. It's a shy virtue. But we know that if we look to you and what you've done for us, it'll change us. Lord, we know that you came not to be served, but to serve. And by your example, you've shown us that true love is not proud. Lord, we love you. We want to be humble. We want to give up this worthless, senseless pride. Help us to get there, Lord. By the power of Jesus. Amen.